You're listening to DraftKings Network. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Too Many Men. My name is Allison Lucan. As always, I'm joined by two people who you know to be brilliant, to be focused, to be committed to making the world a better place. And we're going to deviate real quick here this week on this second episode. Um, of course, Sarah Sivian is here. Of course, Shana Goldman is here. Um, we're going to change things up this season. And every once in a while, when we feel like it's important, because it's our show, we're going to bring you um, an interview with a voice that we think you should hear more of. Um, and so we're going to get right to our interview, but real quickly wanted to touch on Sarah Sivian's favorite segment. Sarah, what is it? Another sad bit of news. <laughs> Sarah, tell us the latest on the Mitchell Miller situation. Yeah. Greg Wyshynski reports on Wednesday afternoon that the Boston Bruins are not currently able to terminate the Mitchell Miller contract. The team has limited options, including paying out Miller's salary until the end of the season when they can buy him out. Um, folks, this is what happens when your vetting process sucks. So you're going to spend a lot of money on somebody that doesn't deserve it. And then to drive how bad that is home, the Hockey Diversity Alliance released a statement via Akima Lou, who was sent a statement the statement from Isaiah Mayor Crothers. And he has been pressured to speak out because people are questioning why is his mom speaking out, which is an absolutely insane thing to do. It's his son. I mean, it's her son. I would hope my mom would speak out for me and stand up for me. And we here at Too Many Men commend her for continuing to fight the good fight in face of all the bullshit. So I'm just going to read the statement. I am Isaiah Mayor Crothers. I would like to make a statement. I have been bullied since I was in first grade. There were not many black kids at my school. I was called, quote, brownie and the N-word. The kids say my black mom and dad didn't love me. That's why I had white parents. Mitchell used to ask me to sit with him on the bus, and then he and his friends would punch me in the head. This happened my whole time in school. When I went to junior high, Mitchell would spit in my face and call me an N-word. I stopped telling because they called me a snitch, and I would get made fun of. I had to say I was his N-word to sit at his table, and he made me clean the whole table. He threw food in my face. I was called N-word every day. The office would tell me to stay away from him because he wasn't my friend. Once he got expelled from school, his friends started bullying me. He pretended to be my friend and made me do things I didn't want to do. In junior high, I got beat up by him. Everyone thought he was cool, but I don't see how someone can be cool when you pick on someone and bully someone your entire life. Middle of October... I was being texted constantly every day till I answered a Snapchat and IG message from Mitchell Miller. He asked me why I always have my parents doing stuff for me and why can't I speak for myself. I told him, I don't care what my parents say. I'm old enough to speak for myself. He told me he was sorry and that the apology didn't involve hockey. He told me he was doing stuff in the community and helping the youth and wanted to be my friend. I told him, that's all cool, but where is the proof though? He didn't give me any. 
All the lies I have been told from him for so many years, I don't believe what Mitchell told me. He kept asking me to be his friend and that he has changed over the years from what he did. I told him, I'm not just going to be your friend after all you did to me. I am now getting messages on social media from people calling me a slow R-word, a clown, and you stupid N-word saying that I need help. Mitchell isn't my friend. It hurts what he did to me. So I just want to tell everyone, when Mitchell says we're friends, it isn't true. I can't take any more of this. Shana, your comments? So it seems like a lot of people are trying to spin it. I'm, I apologize for Kona barking in the background. She's furious about this exactly. situation as well. She's just, she's yelling because I'm not going to because I'm on my best behavior today. Um, <laughs> I feel like people are trying to like, almost like they think they're empowering Isaiah to speak up. Like, don't let your parents speak for you and kind of things like that. And I don't know if that's what like Miller spin was. But to me, I, I look at it and go, that's not, if you want someone something from someone, Bullying them further and making them feel bad that they haven't spoken up isn't the way to go about it. Bombarding them with messages. Now, now you're doing it, right? Like, all of a sudden, you're bombarding someone with text and Instagram messages and Snapchat messages because you're desperate for something. And it's, you know, to be able to turn to a team and say, I apologize. The signing might have only been announced Friday, but they were working on this for up to a year. You don't think that for a while they wanted to make sure he apologized, so Miller had to have... He couldn't lie on that much. He had to say, yeah, I apologized. And it got through. It didn't have anything to do with hockey. Then why now did you make that apology? Why now did you consistently message someone to get to get that response if it wasn't for this contract? So it just there's a lot of holes in everything from, you know, Miller's standpoint and feels like this really does clarify what we've been missing that the messages, the the everything, it, there was a reason for it. And it's coming now. It didn't come after the Arizona situation. It's now when he wanted the contract from the Bruins. And here it is. The Bruins can't just get rid of his salary. They can't just get rid of his contract, which who fucking can believe that? You sign an NHL bu- contract, it's binding unless you have a legitimate reason. The contract was approved. You can't just say, just kidding, we rescind it. And now this player, this person who hasn't done anything besides harass someone to get an apology through is making hundreds of thousands of dollars, no matter what. Great job. Yeah, and uh, unsurprising that they can't just make the contract go away, much like we can't make bad things go away just because we don't want them to be around. Um, But it's slightly possible. Um, We saw the only thing that mattered to Hockey Canada to start to make change was money. And particularly in a cap-strapped year, um, maybe this is the smallest pinprick to the Bruins. I don't know, but it's... It's frustrating nonetheless. Um, We are obviously trying to keep tabs on this. It's an ever-changing story. Um, But as I mentioned, we here at Too Many Men wanted to bring you a voice that can speak far better um, to this than us. And so we were thrilled to bring in uh, Chris Watkins. Um, He's been a contributor to Hockey Graphs. He has worked with the NHL offices um, and Kim Davis on diversity issues. He is Uh, one of, I say this multiple times when we interviewed him, he's literally one of the smartest people I know. Some of his insights into hockey from a data-driven perspective, like just literally blow my mind. And he's talented both in how his mind works and how he can express what he learns about pretty much anything in life. So we're we're thrilled to give you um, time with him. Sarah Shana, anything you want to say about Chris before we turn it over to him? Yeah, we're so just Lucky for his presence in the hockey world and on Twitter, um, that voice is so much needed. 
Yep, he's absolutely brilliant. So definitely listen to what he says, absorb it, try to learn something from it. I think we all did. So, you know, definitely just uh, keep listening to different voices and, you know, expand who you're getting your news from or your opinions from because there are people out there like Chris who can teach everyone a thing or two. Awesome. All right, guys, with no further ado, here's our interview with Chris Watkins. Enjoy. Well, as we mentioned, we are very happy to have a very special guest with us. Um, We are honored to have Chris Watkins here, who is a brilliant mind in his own right, um, but has taken pity on us to share that brilliance in the hockey world, um, fighting for um, important messages in a world that doesn't always uh, make time for the messages he's trying to educate us on. And if nothing else, he's um, a contributor at Hockey Graphs, um, and we'll have this in our show notes. We would encourage all of you to read one of his most recent pieces um, called Racial bias in drafting and development, the NHL's black quarterback problem. And Chris, you've obviously been following the events in hockey. This is unfortunately not the first, but another event in a series. Um, Just share with us kind of your big picture thoughts, what you've seen and and what some of your big takeaways are right now as this continues to develop. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, long story short, at the end of the day, I think my initial thoughts to it was upon hearing that Mitchell Miller was being signed um, was I immediately got this impression and, and signal that the Bruins did not do their due diligence ahead of time um, to sort of justify the signing. Um, just given the nature of the, of the allegations and, and, and sort of what was corroborated in a police report that was filed by the victim's family, uh, of the longstanding nature of the abuse and the different acts that were taken out and carried out, that is a situation where if you are as a signing team going to bring in this particular player um, with this checkered pass and checkered is a very <laughs> euphemistic way of looking at it. If you're going to bring in this particular player, there has to be signed off and approval from the victim themselves and the, and the family um, to be able to say that because inevitably, which is exactly what happened, people are going to follow up and ask the questions about like, has you know Mitch Miller done the prerequisite work to rectify at least some of the damage that he's done? You know, it can't be it, it's very unlikely that even in the best of circumstances, that he would have been able to sort of make up for the fact of racially abusing a uh, a developmentally disabled you know child under the pretext of friendship and you know you know calling them the n-word every single day and you know making him you know clean up after his friends and and all that stuff and saying this is my n-word and all of that stuff uh uh you know giving him a lollipop that had been dipped in a urinal um, like I said, under the pretext of friendship. So it's a double, you know, damage where it's not only this is a bullying situation, but one that was exploitative uh in nature. Um, for a kid who himself has said um in a statement released by the Hockey Diversity Alliance today, you know, this person pretended to be my friend as this abuse was going on. And in the years since this has come out, and as Mitchell Miller's uh professional career has flourished and developed, even with these stops and starts. Um, has pretended to be my friend again and is continued this farce and this facade even leading up to the signing in terms of reaching out and trying to get me to sign off and say all of that. To me, it just indicated that there was a major set of missteps on the part of the Bruins organization um, because unfortunately in sports, when someone is talented enough, people are willing to overlook, you know, just basic human decorum, um, basic best practices as an organization, as a business 
because they can score goals or they can, you know, put points on the board. And we saw that happen here. And unfortunately that created not only a major black eye for the Bruins organization, but reopened a bunch of trauma for the victim and his family as well. That was completely unnecessary and just seems cruel at the end of the day. And so that's my initial thoughts on it, but like emotionally, you know, as a black man in the sport of hockey, uh, as a parent of a child, um, as someone who has worked with, you know, people, you know, uh, who have dealt with, you know, mental disabilities and things of that nature, uh, family members, all of that, like just hearing the nature of that story, um, and having to like live it again, just reading about it, I can only imagine having to have lived through it, um, how damaging that could be. So I think there was a lot of emotions, but the first one overall was disappointment and disgust at the behaviors of the adults in the room, um, uh, basically. So yeah, that's basically, long story short, that's sort of where I start off with. Speaking of disappointment, kind of, can you, I wanted to get your opinion about the PR tour that's going on now and Eustace King's involvement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. So a couple of things. So first off, you know, obviously when Mitchell Miller was being signed, obviously like he had to have some level of representation. And so, you know, you know, which organization would sort of take him on. Um, and so obviously that's a big determining factor. I've never worked at an agency before, but I would assume how that conversation goes is like, hey, is a risk worth the reward? Is this player worth someone, you know, to bring into our fold as an agency in our portfolio? Um, and when it came out that the actual individual that was working him with him was uh, Eustace King, um, who, you know, prior to this particular situation um, was often looked at as a, I think one of the very few African-Americans uh, uh, working in hockey um, as an agent um, has, you know, spoken out publicly and taken a lot of stance on diversity issues, so on and so forth. I'm not sure if it was intentional uh, uh, that his uses King's race played a role in him actually taking on the client to be able to say like, hey, you know, as a black man, I, you know, to understand the difficulties that have been caused by, you know, my client's actions. Um, and I think it's very important for me to sort of be the one to take the lead in terms of rehabilitating, rehabilitating him and getting his career back on the right path. So I was just going with that estimation. I have no idea if that was a conversation that happened and maybe it's not, you know, maybe race had nothing to do with it, which is perfectly fine and okay. But I think because of that in particular, for me personally, as a another black man in the sport, I saw that and I was like, okay, I don't know why you would do that personally. Like, that's not something, as I said, given the nature of the allegations, given what was said to have occurred, given how damaging it was and how long it went on. Um, and knowing that racism in hockey is, is something that is still a, a very big issue, something that is not going away anytime soon, it'll have been very difficult for me personally to make that decision. But as I said, I'm not used to skiing. However, um, as a result of taking him on, there was a PR statement released by Eustace King sort of uh, justifying uh, bringing, on, bringing on Miller as a client. And within that, uh, there were apparent falsehoods in terms of the level of involvement of particular organizations like the uh, the Herb Carnegie Institute um, to the point where those organizations immediately came out and says, like, we're not working with this individual. Um, the Hockey Diversity Alliance, who also said we are not working with this individual, and we actually informed Eustace King not to take on this individual as a result. I got even more incensed because I felt like it was using the pretense of a Black man who's, you know, a pioneering force in the sport as cover for signing this individual. 
And that just like doubled down on the nature of it because he didn't do any of the things that was said in the letter, didn't do the rehabilitative work. He didn't reach out to the family. He didn't attempt to, you know, you know, fix things with the victim. And I honestly respect the victim for not wanting to have that conversation um, with Mitchell Miller. It, 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 it was I, I was so incensed. And then just hearing uh, from Mitch, uh, from the victim today uh, from the ACA in the letter and about all the things that never occurred and all the exploitative things that happened to try to you know, cover over the reality of the situation, it just seems even worse. And so the fact that his agent uh, was complicit in this uh, is it, just like, I, I don't have any trust and credibility in, unfortunately, Eustace King's sort of, not character, because I don't know him personally, but his assessment of the situation that he found himself in. For And I, I think the last point on that is for ultimately a low, uh, like a high risk, low reward signing you're 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 talking about a defenseman who uh, who may not contribute for another three or four years is likely not up for a big big contract like you literally tank the the reputation of your entire agency for this individual who may not even be be an nhl caliber player like it just makes zero sense whatsoever um there's so much more i can go into on that but like that to me was just like i have no idea why you would do this and then there was like an interview yesterday that like doubled down on you know this isn't as bad as it looks all that like it just seems like the PR, Mitchell Miller has his own shortcomings. I don't dispute that at all. I personally don't think he should be allowed to play hockey. But even if he was, the people around him failed him even more so. His parents, um, you know, are, are guardians in the situation. This agency and, and the representation that he's had, the Boston Bruins and the Arizona Coyotes, like he has been failed in his ability to rehabilitate himself by the adults in the room. And that to me is just as damning as anything else has come out about this story. And Chris, you know, you made a tweet um, the other day and that was part of what I mean, I always appreciate you know hearing from you and learning from you. But we you shouldn't have to explain this. But your point in the tweet, one of the many was, you know, Eustace King as a black man is already having to work twice as hard to even yeah. it, what was the conundrum? And again, we don't know Eustace. Yeah. We have not spoken to him. But why is this just even just more frustrating even before the PR flubs that Sure. Eustace has such a hard path in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, uh, in talking with people involved in the sport, you know, players, uh, uh, you know, executives, uh, you know, media uh, individuals uh, of color who have worked in the sport, played the sport, all of that. I, you know, I've heard, you know, many stories uh, and, and there's so many more that I probably have not heard. But I've heard many stories about the difficulties of being a, a, a visible person of color in, in the sport of hockey, which is... Uh, that last check, last time I ran the numbers, 94% white. Like that in itself at the end of the day, even if nothing else was happening in terms of, you know, people being racist or saying comments or making gestures, like just being a, a outsider in a sport that does not pr primarily look like you, just creates a different environment than where you're not as comfortable being your full self in that situation. And so just taking that into account, and then being an agent, being, you know, financial, you know, responsible for the financial uh, outcomes of, you know, prominent players in the sport um, and, and Eustace King and o O2K have very prominent clients. Um, that is, you know, as I said, I, I, I previously could say I looked up to Eustace King for his efforts and, you know, and pioneering and sort of being at the forefront of that. I think Brent Peterson, who I believe is the assistant GM for the Florida Panthers, is the only other agent of color that I'm aware of um, at the time. Like that in itself, like, you know, you know, kudos, great job to be able to make it that far. But, and also hearing those conversations where, 
hey, during the George Floyd protests or the Black Lives Matter and, and people taking a knee, I've heard a lot of conversations like, I would love to do this, but I've worked too hard to sort of put that on the line to do that. And I get it. I get it. I, mean, I actually said uh, there was a conversation last year with a media personality where I said, I understand why this person wouldn't do it. It's easy for me to tweet and say, blah, 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 because my paycheck's not on the line. Like, it, you know, if my family livelihood and my ability to pay my mortgage was at risk, I might be a little bit more hesitant to say X, Y, and Z either. There's a reason why my employers don't follow me uh, on Twitter. Like, they, uh, So I, I get that 100%. But there comes a point where you have to draw a line. And as I said, for me personally, that line was Sonny Mitchell Miller um, as a client. Um, because in the exact statement I said was, based on my understanding of the situation and based on the lack of remorse on the part of Mitchell Miller, I don't know how Eustace King can personally sit there and say, like, if I were in a situation where the power dynamic was not as an agent to a client in need of representation, but as just an individual on the street, that Mitchell Miller and his family, from what I hear, would not treat me the same or do a similar level of activity. That, unfortunately, is not a person I feel I could personally represent, where the only reason why this conversation is even happening is that the power dynamic is different. And, and that to me is what was the most concerning about Eustace's involvement with with, uh, with the signing. So while we have that on one side of it, that's as questionable as can be, you know, we see the Hockey Diversity Alliance coming out with the statement yesterday. And then today, you know, with Isaiah's thoughts for the first time we're hearing from him. So what do you think of their involvement in this and how, you know, they're coming into the fold? So the short answer is, you know, kudos to the ACA for stepping up and sort of, you know, making their point known um, about their, I guess, disassociation with the signing and how this should have been handled. Um, I think it, it in reading the statement itself, I uh, give the ACA a lot of credit because um, I've been following them basically since it started. Um, as a person that's worked in the diversity space for a number of years, that has worked with the NHL and various like teams and organizations around diversity and, and, and sort of talking about it, I can see definitely a level of maturity in terms of their approach and having these conversations that they did not have at the beginning. Um, uh, and, you know, I have been one to have called out the HDA in the past for lack of effort and energy and initiatives to sort of, you know, use the power of that particular organization and to leverage that and to change the this, uh, the state of the hockey world in a positive place. So I give the ACA credit for us for not only making a statement prior to sharing Isaiah's particular testimony, but also creating a space that Isaiah felt comfortable to share what his real feelings were. Um, I think a lot of the negative commentary around the backlash uh, around this particular situation was like, well, we haven't heard from the victim. We've only heard from you know his family and his mother. Can he speak for himself? Is this not as bad as it says it is? Is it blown out of proportion? Is this social justice warriors on the internet? You know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, here's the actual victim statement uh, as to what he felt as happened and what he felt the actual attempts to fix it were. And he felt both were very uh, lacking. And so I give the HDA credit for, for their efforts in this. And I think to me, this is a springboard to potentially resolve, to better resolve situations like this going forward. Um, it is my hope and honest thought that had a person from a underrepresented community been in the room when this decision was made, that maybe that this particular signing wouldn't have happened. Same thing with the Arizona. I don't know if that's the case, you know, as we can see with like Eustace King, but the hope is that with a better understanding of the sensitivity of these particular topics and the need to bring in 
the proper professionals and people who have dealt with situations like this before, um, that maybe we, we can resolve these situations going forward. I've just been thinking a lot about how truly bad the vetting process was, right? It's like, I'm listening to all these interviews and Don Sweeney saying, oh, I didn't know we didn't talk to him. Oh, I didn't know this or that. Like, how does the president and the GM not communicate on this? I'm just kind of wondering if since the victim's mother has been so vocal, which is you don't see that every day. And I want to give her so many props for doing that. It sucks that Isaiah felt he had to say something in the face of all this abuse. But I'm just kind of trying to put my own thoughts together about how can the vetting process be improved or or was it intentionally bad? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sorry. I I, I think very quickly, uh, because this was some of the conversations I've had in the past with with the league office, I think to be very honest, the vetting situation, it was not intentionally bad. It was unintentionally bad, but for the reasons because there is not the structure in place to be able to handle situations like this. You know, the Blackhawks being a perfect example, like basically there was no HR infrastructure or like no hotline to be able to report anything happening with the uh, Kyle Beach, you know, Brad Aldridge situation because that's not how, unfortunately, hockey executives are programmed to think. They're thinking only about the output on the ice and not about the overall organization that supports that. And so in this situation where it is not just about the output on the ice from Mitchell Miller, like no one is disputing that he's a very talented player, but the off the ice stuff is why he was not signed in the first place. And because they did not have anybody who's ever dealt with the off the ice situation in a way that does not have to do with hockey, they approached it with a very hockey focused lens and therefore didn't have the resources in place, didn't confer with any professionals or the family they said like, hey, how would we approach this? You know, even reaching out to the HDA, maybe been like, hey, you know, what is your thoughts on this? Like, you know, does this make sense? Like, should we do this? If we do go forward with this, you know, how should we approach it and and portray and portray it to our fans and to the media? Like, none of that was ever brought into the calculation. So I don't think it was an intentional oversight, but it was that lack of oversight that was more damning than anything else. What kind of resources should teams, you know? try to get together to help players that they feel they must sign in these situations Mm -hmm. like how can how can a player earn a second chance what do they need to do before the signing what do they what does the team need to do in tandem with them to make this you know okay because you know it we can look at this a million ways and go he was 14 what can he do to eventually get back on track like anything like that because everyone keeps saying that's not who he is today how can he show otherwise yeah, so uh, I'll use two quick examples. So one is currently live and happening. Who knows where this lands with this whole Kyrie Irving situation, which is a whole different thing. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, given what happened and him uh, uh, publicly sharing anti-Semitic material and then doubling down on the fact that he had the right to and uh, all of this, the team and the NBA, which is normally lauded for social efforts, which... I think this past week has shown that that's probably a little bit misguided. Um, they gave him like a six step plan to sort of redeem himself and basically be able to come back to the team. Um, I think in that situation, that's probably the bare minimum where the damage has been done. The public perception of the team is like forever ruined as a result, as well as of the player. And here's the sort of, you know, here's our public statement on how to sort of get back on track with that. I don't think we'll fix the situation, but at least it is, some objective way to say that we are trying to get back to it. 
I'll probably say the more extreme example, and regardless of where you stand on whether or not this individual is able to do so or not, is probably Michael Vick. Um, and Michael Vick, you know, as a star quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, you know, was arrested uh, for, you know, very uh, it, horrible and malicious, you know, dog fighting charges, you know, the, the murder of dogs, spent, I believe, two years in federal prison, basically lost his endorsements, sponsorships, you know, basically lost his career for a point in time and was damaged goods uh, for a period of time. And was only able to come back after, you know, efforts of working with PETA and sort of basically like creating the things like I was the worst person in the world to dogs. And now I'm going to be the best person in the world to dogs here on Ford. As I said, many people still don't feel that he did enough or, you know, I have not forgiven him for that. And, and definitely is their rights to. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when you look at the track record of what he did, it's like, OK, here was the damaging things that you did for years. And it's going to take you years to sort of get that back. I think that's an important part where the, you know, Mitchell Miller tortured Isaiah Crothers for years and like a simple text, like, Hey, I'm your friend now. Like, can you sign off and say like, we're cool. So I can like sign with the team. Like, bro, like you like literally tortured me for like 10 years. Like one text is not going to make up for that. And so I think when we talk about rehabilitation, it has to be a organization that is not, either within the within the team itself or at, at the league office or somebody was not involved with the day-to-day -day of whether or not this team will win a cup or not and does not care about that and only cares like most organizations that haven't worked in HR for 10 years, most times HR is literally there just not get the company sued. Like the only job is to not get the company sued and we'll figure out all this stuff like that. That creates a lot of moral hazards and you know settlements that happen off of the sea. But ultimately at the end of the day, like they're not worried about the bottom line. Our only got job is to not get a sued. And so establishing that as a baseline is like the bare minimum. Doing that at the league office is probably also critical because like, yes, while this was the Bruins, it also makes the NHL look really bad that this happened on their watch, especially given the stuff that's happened in the past couple of years. And so I think those two things are just like establishing at the, the team level and the league level, and then probably bringing in a third party organization who does not give a darn about hockey <laughs> to say like, here's what you should do even a PR organization that's worked in diversity efforts or things like that, like all this is across the board. Cause like, this is not the only thing, the hockey Canada thing is still like looming and it's still unresolved. There's like a whole bunch of other things across the board where hockey took the precedence and now the sport of hockey is suffering for it. I just have one more question about media involvement. It feels like there's a few members of the national media who have like a powerful voice they could use for good yeah. that have either upheld the Bruins or have been silent. Do you think that plays a role in the continuation of these type of situations and letting these type of guys into the league? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it plays a massive role. Like even uh, one, let me let me say, I commend Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron and, uh, and Nick Foligno. Uh, for, you know, being out in front, at least being on the right side of the story and being on the right side of history with this saying, like, we never really agreed with this to begin with um, from day one. With that being said, and, and I'm just focusing on them to start off with because it's a larger conversation around the media. With that being said, I think, you know, if you were to poll the general Bruins fandom about this particular question and say, like, should we have signed Mitchell Miller, like, on day one of the announcement, probably, like, it's a 75, 25% split that says no. And so even in that situation, it was like, it's kind of easy to be on the right side of history even though there's many people that clearly decided not to be um, in that situation. And the reason why I bring that up in regards to the media is because oftentimes what I've seen in the hockey media, um, and I definitely saw this uh, like, you know, during the George Floyd protests and when it came to like COVID and the bubble and all that stuff like that is like, 
in situations where it's like, ah, yeah, like 90% of my readership agrees with this anyway. So, you know, let me make this brave stand and, and say X, Y, and Z, or let me make this point, you know, sure. Ah, yeah, you know, this was super bad. Um, but in situations that's more 50-50, you know, should Patrick Kane be lauded by the NHL given the allegations against him? Should the Edmonton Oilers bring back uh, Evander Kane and so on and so forth where things are not quite cut and dry um, and their reputation may be on the line or they feel that, you know, they may lose access or whatever it may be. I feel like there is a pretext of a lack of agency. It's like, oh, I wish I could say something, but, you know, I'm held back by the, the powers that be or my editors and so Like, you have 500 million, you know, 500,000 followers on Twitter. Like, I'm sure if something happened to you, like, it will probably damage your institution much more than it damage you. Like, you're fine. Like, and so I think there's just a lack of bravery and willing and courage to step out in these more controversial topics and takes. Um, and not told the company line or not regurgitate exactly what the team said back to you. And as a result of that, I think hockey media as a whole suffers because you don't get an objective lens or at least one that is not colored by the perceptions and the wants of the team. And so that's how sort of like this permeates where it's like, oh, the Bruins did their due diligence. Clearly they didn't. And any credibility that you had has been like completely undermined by this the updates over the past couple of days. And it was like, for what? Ultimately at the end of the day, like this was not, a story worth like risking your career and credibility over. And even if it was like, maybe that's something you have to take a stand on. And if that's like, you know, if that's the trade-off you have to make, like ultimately you have to, and then at the end of the day, decide where your ethics and moral stands to say like, ah, is that paycheck worth it for me to like blatantly cover up something that's so nefarious and egregious. So yeah, I, I, I think it was a disappointing, uh, for a, a very many people, it was a very disappointing week overall to say the least. Chris, you have talked about how you were so frustrated, and this has been a really hard series of events. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that you have time to to share more. Anything else that's on your mind? Anything else you wish people were paying more attention to, or that's just important for you to express, and that you need people to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think one uh, one of the key things that has been very clear over time, but especially in the past couple of months, was you know one that there that the willingness of a team or organization to put up with any any uh, transgressions on your part is always re related to the level of talent <laughs> and the level of basically how you can contribute to the bottom line. So, you know, if unfortunately we get into these situations, you know, as I said, going back to the Patrick Kane situation, where it's like, if Patrick Kane was not an MVP candidate the year after the allegations came out, would he have come back? You know, you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, that like his legacy is lauded now, but you cannot get over the fact that these allegations were very real and present in the time and our society as a whole just wasn't equipped to properly like process them. And now we just sort of swept it under the rug. I think unfortunately sports at the end of the day, while they are important and obviously, you know, you all spend, you know, quite a bit of time thinking about them. I, I do as well. Like ultimately at the end of the day, like they're an entertainment outlet. They are not the end all be all society. And if these trade-offs that we're making for you know for our entertainment is ruining and destroying people's lives like permanently like there is no amount of goals that can be scored to get over that like there may just not be a path of redemption for mitchell miller like and that's something that we have to accept it does not matter how good they are at the sport we have to accept the fact that some people just can't be redeemed on the other side of that there is a path of redemption i've never been the type of person and professionally i was not that's not something you can do in a professional setting at like from an HR perspective of just saying like, 
unless you clearly establish that this is a zero tolerance policy. If X, Y, Z happens, this person can never work for us again. You know, you have to identify those paths to redemption and steps to take to fix it um, at the end of the day. And so I'm just bringing that professional context in and saying there probably was a path for redemption for Mitchell Miller. There probably could have been an opportunity between him getting let go by the Coyotes and him getting signed by the Bruins, where if he had spent that entire time working on fixing the situation that he created with the support of his family around him that sort of enabled him to do so, how do you actually spend that time trying to redeem himself? We probably wouldn't be in this situation. And I'm sure, you know, it may have been the case that uh, Isaiah Crowder's family did not sign off on it anyways. Like, there's no point where they did it, but at least you can point to saying, like, no, here's what all the things I tried to do. Um, it may not be enough for the family and I, you know, and forever uh, in sorrow for the damage I've done. But, you know, here's how I'm trying to make myself a better person. You know, maybe people would have been more sympathetic to that. But the fact that he didn't even do that and no one around him sort of forced him to do so. And no one thought it'd be critical for him to do that before publicly coming out saying we're doing X, Y, Z. It just it, it, it's just so baffling to me. And so I think this redemption art piece is very critical and important, but it has to be clear. But to me, the punishment has to fit the crime or the redemption has to fit the crime. And, and I don't think it was anywhere near that in that case. So I think that's the, the sort of second thing where it's like, I don't want to ever say that no one can make a living again in a particular avenue or profession um, based on things they did, you know, but it's all on a case by case basis. Uh, so I think that's a, that, that's the other key thing. I mean, and I think the last thing is, you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, we have to hold these teams and organizations accountable. I mean, I think, you know, with the NHL, you know, there's been quite a few situations like these where, you know, talent wins out over, you know, the actual morals and character of a person. Unfortunately, we don't go and sell out the audience for like having a, a team full of Boy Scouts. Like we don't sell out the stadium for that. We don't, you know, we don't support the community service things that say like, hey, you know, they might've lost seven to one today, but they did like feed, you know, 500 hungry children in the community. Like that's not, unfortunately not something we celebrate. And so then you get situations like this. And I think the only way that you can sort of really affect change as a fan is with your pocketbook and saying like, we're not going to support this character building model of the team, regardless of how much it helps us win. If we do it and feel horrible after because we hired a bunch of horrible people to, to play for our team and put on our jersey, then it's not worth it. And so I think like NHL fans and honestly NBA fans right now too, uh, across all sports have to stand up with their pocketbooks and says, we will not allow this to happen until that happens. We're going to have another situation like this. Mr. Miller is only going to be the latest one now and two years from now, there'll be somebody else. Logan Malou, another example, like Van Kane coming back, like they, someone else's talent will always win out over their transgressions. And until we make a stand as a NHL hockey community, it will always be the case. So I, I think those are the main things I just want to say. You are brilliant as always. I know we're up against time with you, but I thought I'd ask you this and the answer can be no. <laughs> um, you mentioned, you know, things that people can do and I hope people hear your words and take that action and, and make it their own. Are there reasons for optimism now? Are things even changing the tiniest bit or is there still just so much work to do? I mean, I think, yeah. So it's easy to be overly cynical and says that things are always bad and always will be. Um, I think th that unfortunately is, in my perception, the wrong lens to look at it. Yes, things are always bad. Um, there's always going to be something that happens. Even with, you can have the best HR organization in place. Um, you could have the best infrastructure in place and have all the checks and balances in place. And people are just going to do bad things. Like that's the human nature of fighting against organizational like prerogatives. That's always going to happen. 
with that being said, I think the visibility around this, this sort of, I, I think teams are going to have to think twice about conversations like this going forward. I thought that was going to happen with the first time <laughs> uh, Mitch Miller was drafted, all this stuff like that. But it's like, okay, now. Think. Yeah. <laughs> twice. Yeah. twice. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right. Uh, but I think there is going to be a further push to have the professionalization of NHL front offices and, and the league as a whole to not allow things like this to happen. Um, maybe they'll be better at covering up next time. Maybe that's the end outcome. But I think really <laughs> it, it is a step on the path to getting to where ultimately everybody wants it to be five or 10 years from now. And so I think there is hope for optimism. I think the HDA's response was, as I said, showing that it, I presume that the players themselves had some professional help in writing that because a lot of the things that they talked about uh, that hit on a lot of the sort of DEI buzzwords that are sort of very prevalent now. And that's great. Either the players informed themselves better or they brought in some professional help to help them inform. Either way, it shows that there are efforts being made to get better at this as a whole. And so I think, unfortunately, we'll probably have a similar story like this two years from now. I'm happy to slot my time in ahead of time for that. But my hope is that uh, the frequency and the the magnitude is reduced uh, uh, in, in short order. Awesome. Chris, again, um, we can't thank you enough. You shouldn't have to scream so loudly for these words <laughs> and these messages to be heard, but yeah. you are seriously one of the smartest people I know. I am such in awe of you in, in all walks of life, even when you're trolling all of us on Twitter. <laughs> um, tell, tell the people, if you wish, where <laughs> they can find you or where they can learn from you if they so choose, be it about hockey or DEI or, or anything. Sure. Yeah, so uh, I'm at uh, yellow underscore pinato, P-I-N-Y-A-T-O uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm occasionally on there. <laughs> generally, I'm not during the work week. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I try to speak to things out, you know, it just sort of speaks to how it is um, on there from a data perspective, from a, just like I said, a black man in hockey perspective. Now, I'm, I'm a dad that may want my daughter to play hockey. So I'm going to tell him and until these situations are fixed. I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. And so I have a personal vested interest in that. Um, and so if you want to follow that journey, then yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter there. Um, and check out yeah, the hockey graphs uh, uh, right up that I did. So. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. 